Ruth chapter 2, Ruth chapter 2, the eighth book of the Bible, right after the book of Judges. If you get to the book of uh, 1 Samuel, you've gone too far. Ruth chapter 2. I love shortcuts. Um, anything that I can do to save time, I love. And I love keyboard shortcuts. I, I love recipe shortcuts. I, I love driving shortcuts. And I, I have some great shortcuts for you tonight. Don's going to put them on the screen just one at a time. It, it, let's see what we have first. Oh, this one. If you don't have time to walk the dog and read the paper, here's a shortcut for you. <laughs> What's the next one, Don? Uh, this one is good. If you you know don't if you're too tired to hold your phone, here's a shortcut for you to watch a movie. This one is my one of my favorite. This if you're too tired to paddleboard but you want to do it anyway, here's a shortcut for you. You see what he has? Duct tape. If you're a college student and you're too tired to hold your iPad to watch a movie, here's a shortcut for you. Well, there should be one more doozy, Don. The toenails. Oh, it's the best one ever. Are you sure? Check your email one more time. <laughs> it's some toenails. Oh, it's so good. I have to wait. I'm going to wait. <laughs> I can't go. Well, here, I'll tell you what it was. It was a picture of five toes and only two toenails painted. And then she put her, her toe in the shoe, and that was all the out was the two toenails. And I was like, that is so brilliant. Don't have time to paint your toenails. There's a shortcut for you. <laughs> and then there was one with a baby. The guy is sitting on the porch at a, around a little, you know, patio table. And the baby is on a swing out in the lawn. And he has a string tied to it. And he has his feet up and he's relaxing and he's just swinging the baby. I don't know how we lost those, but they were good ones. Oh, he thinks he found them. So all kidding aside, my, my life is busy and, and filled to the gills, so any shortcut I can take is a welcomed relief. But one of the biggest wastes of time for me is time spent in the car. I have to drive from place to place, and I feel like that is wasted time in my car. And so it, especially in our house, in our subdivision, there is, you have to go way out of your way to get into our subdivision. You have traffic lights, and it's just crazy. And so I found this shortcut uh, that I could take that didn't involve any traffic lights. It's back by Retzer Nature Center, and, and, and I can cruise down that road, and it worked really, really well until... They started construction on that street, and they closed that street going into Retzer Nature Center. And it makes me angry. Every time I go by, I'm like, that's my shortcut. Now I'm wasting all this extra time having to go down to the corner, wait at the red light, turn, hit another red light. It just takes forever. And so I was driving by uh, Retzer the other day, and, and I slowed because I thought maybe the road is open. And then I saw the big construction signs there, and I realized it wasn't, and I gave a little sigh, and... And then I came to the top of the hill, and there's another subdivision that connects to ours. And I thought, huh, I bet I can cut through that subdivision and, and miss all those red lights, and I'm going to get home. I'll beat Dave home, is, was my big goal, is to beat Dave home. And, and so I turned into the subdivision, and I started winding around all the, the little houses, and I'm like, I... Dave is going to thank me so much for this because I just found a shortcut. It's going to cut time off of our, 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 our schedule here. We're going to save time. And so I'm weaving and I'm getting happier every, every moment, you know, because I'm thinking I found the shortcut. This is going to save me so much time. And, and so I finally get to the end of the subdivision and, and it's just about a block from my house. And I turn to go to my house and there is another big, bright, blazing orange 
construction sign that said, dead end, closed for construction. And what I thought was going to save me so much time ended up costing me time because I had to weave back out, out that subdivision and go down to the red light like I always do and go home anyway. Unfortunately, my shortcut didn't work. Shortcuts rarely do. My attempt to save time turned out uh, to make even a longer route and ended up in a dead end. Life is like that sometimes, isn't it? We're always looking for an easier way out, a shortcut. We want to avoid the long way. And when I read the book of Ruth, that's what I think about. That's what caused Naomi and Amalek's problems, trying to avoid pain and find a shortcut uh, outside of God's will. In what might seem to us as a logical shortcut, of course, avoid famine in Bethlehem by going to Moab where there was food. That seemed logical. But in the end, it actually ended up in a dead end full of tragedy. Do we have the pictures? Yeah, there's the swing shortcut. <laughs> Do you have the toenails? Because that was the best one. There, look at that. <laughs> so shortcuts don't always pay off. <laughs> So the lesson we gleaned from in chapter one was the choice to take a spiritual shortcut that it never ends well. So we need to stay on the path that the Lord sets before us and not veer from it. Uh, I'm telling you, I said it tonight in prayer. One of the things that I'm learning that I so wish I could translate to people and, and that I could really help you get this is that God's ways really do work. And that when we stay on his pleasant path, it really does lead to pleasant places. But when we try to get off that path and do things our own way, it never ends well. It's like my shortcut through the neighborhood. There's a dead end sign waiting for you. And I wish that I could tell you this and have it get deep inside of you, that shortcuts, fleshly shortcuts, never end well. That God's way always is perfect. His ways, no matter how hard they might seem, are always best. There's a road by my house and it's paved. It looks like a road. It has sidewalks and, and it looks like it's going to lead somewhere. But if you follow it, it ends in a dead end. It's a road that leads to nowhere. Moab looked to Naomi and Amalek like it was a road that was going to lead somewhere, but it led only to a dead end. And I'm sure at the end of chapter one, Naomi felt like the shortcut she took with her husband and her son would lead someplace better, but it led to destruction and eventually to what appeared to be a dead end in life. We so easily forget that, when we, that we serve a God who specializes in taking dead ends and making them doorways. And that's what we're going to see in the passage that we're going to read tonight. You see, God waited for Naomi to turn back. And once she decided that the shortcut she had taken wasn't the answer, and she turned back, that put her in a position to once again be blessed by God. And I don't have any doubt that it was a long way back, because the way back always is. But with each step they took, they got closer and closer to the blessings of God and to the place of his abundant provision and protection. And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight, because here's what I'm convinced of, that when we try to take a shortcut, when we try to find a way that's not, that's outside of God's will, that just makes our life a little bit easier, it always ends in a dead end. It always ends in destruction. But the second we turn and we head back God's way, the blessing always comes. I promise you, it always comes. 
And that's what we're going to look at in Ruth chapter 2 tonight. I just want to read three verses. Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Emelech, and his name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened. Somebody say, She happened. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was in the family of Emelech. She happened to end up in Boaz's field. Oh, can I just tell you that nothing ever happens. God has a plan, and he's working it in our life for our good and for his glory. And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight, but would you just pray with me before we begin? Father, I just thank you and I praise you for your word. I thank you that it's powerful, it's active, and it never returns void that it always goes forth and prospers for the very thing that you sent it to do. Lord, would you bring clarity to your word tonight? Would you bring understanding? Would you help me to teach as one who's learned? Would you make my mouth like a sharpened sword, like a pen in the hand of a skillful writer? Would you give your words wings into the hearts and the minds of the men and women here tonight? But most of all, Lord, would you just be glorified in everything that's said and done here, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have ever seen the show Chopped? Not many. Hmm. Well, for those of you that haven't, the, the premise of the show is you have four cooks and they're given a basket of supplies and they're usually very random supplies or bizarre supplies, the ingredients that you would not normally choose to make a recipe. And, and these cooks are told they have some judges sitting there who are, are chefs, professional chefs, and these cooks are told that they have to take the ingredients of that basket, the bizarre random ingredients, and they have to make something beautiful or tasty out of it. And uh, they're given a short amount of time to do it. And, and once I heard Bianca Olaf, I don't know if you, you know who she is. She's an incredible preacher. And once I heard her tell a story about a show that she, uh, an episode of Chop that, Chop that she saw. And she said the chefs opened their, their baskets and, and they were surprised to find a, a jar, a glass jar of uh, bacon grease, a little jar of champagne vinegar, and some pre-cooked frozen shrimp. And she said she was stunned because one of the chefs immediately grabbed some pots and pans and and began to dump the the, the bacon grease into this pan. And and she's stirring and she's adding things to it and adding flour to it. And and she's busy while the other ones are still thinking about what they're going to make. And and this woman acted like she really knew what she was doing. And and she's stirring and stirring and stirring. And and Bianca said that the the television camera was situated on top of the, the kitchen counter so they could see what the cooks were cooking down below. And she said, you could see how, how this mixture that she, she was stirring started out to be like a cream color or a white color. And, and then it turned tan and then it got darker tan. And eventually it got pretty brown and kind of had a reddish brown tinge to it. And, and she said, and then it started bubbling really hard and, and sticking to the pan and it turned as black as can be. Don, we have a picture of, of a very similar one. See, it turned black like that. And, and at that point, the judges really started to get concern and they started talking amongst them themselves and they said it's ruined now it's too late now it's burnt 
It's beyond hope, and she might as well just pitch that aside and, and start something new because it's not going to work. And, but, but what was interesting is what that chef knew that maybe not even the judges knew because the judges were saying, it's ruined. It's, it's going to be bitter. It's, it's, not worth, it's not worth salvaging. Meanwhile, this little chef is stirring and stirring and stirring, and, and she's stirring something off to this side as well that she's eventually going to add into it. And, and what, what the judges didn't realize is that little girl, that little woman that was stirring that pot of roux, which is what she was making, had, was from a Creole descent. And that her grandmother had taught her from a young age how to make great gumbo. Most people don't know how to make great gumbo, uh, she would say later in an interview, because she not only won that round, but she won the entire round, because what she made was so delicious. She said, most people are like the judges, and they look at the bitter, and that it's bitter, and it's burnt, and it's not going to, not, not salvageable. But she said, what her grandmother taught her is that the darker it was, the better the flavor would be. That that burnt part, the bitter parts, are what really add to the flavor. That a rich, dark roux is the foundation for any good dish. A good cook lets the roux get as dark as possible before pulling it from the fire. The part that the other people judge has gone too far and too messed up, get rid of it and start again, are really the things that add the depth and the flavor. As I listened to that, I thought about my own life, and I thought about the book of Ruth, and, and how isn't the same thing true in life? When the heat gets turned up in our lives, and, and trouble comes, and, and it sometimes feels like things are too far gone and too messed up. When life is so dark, it's dark like that rue, and, and it's so bitter, and it's full of just, it just seems hopeless. Often, the only option we feel like we have is to just start over or start fresh, begin again. But little do we realize that that part of our life that's burnt and bitter, the part that, that just seems too dark and unsalvageable is really the part that adds richness and depth. It's interesting to me that once the roux is burnt, the Creoles add what they call a holy trinity. You see, that's what that cook was working on on this side. The holy trinity is, I believe it's onion and celery and green pepper. And they call it the Holy Trinity because what happens is they take that Holy Trinity and they add it to this burnt, bitter roux. I kid you not, look it up. And when they put it into that roux, it absorbs the bitterness and it makes it this sweet, delicious, wonderful taste. As I studied that this week, I thought, wow, isn't that where we end it with the book of Ruth, uh, Ruth last week? With Ruth and Naomi in the middle of a dark, dark time where, where, where all they could taste was bitterness. It was like that gumbo roux where everything looked too far gone and hopeless. But you see, the Holy Trinity was at work. And that's what we're going to see this week. That the, that the Lord, he brings this thing into our life that just sweetens up those bitter areas. If we allow him, if we add what he's offering into our life, he takes the bitter and makes it sweet. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? Ruth and Naomi, uh, we left off as they were entering Bethlehem, and Naomi had been gone for 10 years, and now she stood surrounded by her friends and her acquaintances, and, and she had nothing to show for those 10 years. Nothing to show for those 10 years except a whole lot of pain and this Gentile pagan daughter in by her own confession, she said, the Lord took me out full and he brought me back empty and, and just call me Mara because I'm bitter. The pain had blinded her eyes so much that, that it's all she could see. That's all she knew. 
Pain always has a payoff. Can I just tell you that? Pain is really an asset. I'm really learning that in my life. That pain is an asset. And the asset that Ruth, that Naomi gained in her pain was this daughter-in-law who would not leave her side and who was committed to her and to take good care of her. And little did she know that although it seemed to be a dark, dark time, God was working in ways that she could not see. And that he had resources prepared for her that were far greater than anything she could ever imagine. I want you to remember that loyal Ruth, who was by her side, she had trouble too. She had lost a husband too. She had lost a brother-in-law. She left her home. She left her culture. She left her family, her gods. I want you to remember that under rabbinic law, 10 years of a childless marriage was grounds for divorce. She had been childless for 10 years. So remarriage for Ruth was not looking good at this point. But the Bible says that she was determined to show hesed, loving kindness to her mother-in-law, to be faithful to her mother-in-law. Can I just tell you that when you choose to sacrifice for the good of somebody else, you will always be blessed. This weekend, Friday study. And by the way, I want to just pick up where Leslie left off there. You are so welcome to join us on Friday mornings. It's an early morning study, but I promise you, those of you that are in Friday morning, would you agree? It is worth getting up at 630 in the morning for. It is such a sweet, sweet time, a time of great learning, deep learning, uh, but it is, is worth every moment. And this week we studied the, the word agape, uh, the agape love, God's love in us and, and how agape love is unselfish. It, it thinks about the other person first. It puts their needs first. That agape love functions, that, that how can I best serve you? How can I bless you? How can I do good to you at my own expense? Oh, we don't understand that kind of love, do we? But that's what, that's what Ruth was determined to show Naomi. And she got her eyes off her own problem and, and she got it on serving Naomi. And so tonight's story picks up there and, and it picks up in the barley field in Bethlehem where the God who we might previously have been tempted to believe was not working reveals himself to be powerfully working in the life of these two women. He is a redeemer. Do you know that? He buys back he redeems all things, and he's a redeemer, and in this story, we find he is busy working out his plan of redemption in the lives of these two women who desperately need it to see his goodness. There might be some of you sitting here tonight who desperately need to see his goodness. Oh, can I remind you that he is the redeemer of all things? This is an incredible love story. You're going to see that in the weeks to, to come. And, but in the book of, of Ruth, it's, it's powerful because this picture of Boaz is really going to be a picture of Jesus. And we'll see that as we move along. There's so many types and shadows throughout this book. But I don't want you to miss that this was a typical day in Ruth and Naomi's life. They had, they had they'd just decided they're going forward. They're moving forward. It was a typical day. It wasn't anything out of the ordinary, but God interrupted their normal, typical day. And he took the ordinary and made it extraordinary. And he can do the same thing in your life. In the middle of the mundane, God is expressing his providential care and unbelievable grace in the lives of these women. If you're sitting here tonight and you have not seen the hand of God at work in your life, can I just encourage you to read this story, to make it part of your own life, and to understand that even if you feel like God is not working, I promise you, he is behind the scenes doing immeasurably more than you could ever ask or imagine. He's just inviting you to a place of trust. So fascinating to me that chapter one covers a span of 10 years. 
And in a few verses, we see a famine, a family move, a death of a husband and a father, two marriages, the deaths of two sons and two husbands, and two women's moves back to the family's original home, all in a few short verses. And now in chapter two, the author slows the story and he covers one 24-hour day in that chapter. So let's look at verse one. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Emelech, and his name was Boaz. J.A. Motier, one of my favorite commentators, says, most detective stories keep their secret until the last page. This writer lets us into a secret right out the start. Here's the secret. There's a man named Boaz. He is God's picture of being at work in these two women's lives. I'm interested in the fact that the word used to describe Boaz isn't just that he was a relative of Emelech. It's actually a word that's derived from the Hebrew word yada, which means to know. It means to intimately know. When they say that there was a relative of Emelech, it means that he was a person with whom he was intimately acquainted. That's fascinating to me. Because I want you to think about Naomi. And if Naomi knew this, if if Amalek was intimately acquainted with Boaz, why didn't she try to contact him when she came back to Bethlehem? I want to know that. I want to know why that was not her first stop when she came back to Bethlehem. And what makes me even more curious is at the end of the chapter, Boaz gets revealed as a kinsman redeemer. And the word that Naomi uses, kinsman redeemer, is actually plural, meaning that she knows there's more than one. So the God who took her out full and brought her back empty, she's coming back to Bethlehem aware that there is a kinsman redeemer there. And she never reaches out to him. I want to know why. But even more so in this chapter, you'll find out that Boaz tells Ruth he knew all about her. And that she had heard of what she did for Naomi. And, and, and yet, as generous as he appears, he had not sent for Naomi. He didn't go visit her and say, how can I help you out? I, I want to know why. Those are questions you need to ask yourself as you're studying this chapter. Another interesting fact to me, does anybody know who Boaz's mother is? Anybody? Rahab. Don, do you have that list up here? Can you put it at the, yeah, look at that. So Tamar and Judah, remember, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. So Tamar and Judah, and then we have those couple people that were born, and eventually Salmon. Salmon and Rahab married, and they had Boaz. Boaz, we're going to find out in a couple weeks, marries Ruth, and they have Obed, Obed had Jesse. Jesse had David. David married Bathsheba. They had Solomon and Nathan. From Solomon's line came Joseph, and from Nathan's line came Mary. Mary and the Holy Spirit come together, and guess who's born? Okay, can I just tell you? From this line, Boaz. Now, think about Naomi and Ruth. God doesn't love us, and he's not taking care of us, and look how bad our life is, and learn, look how burned the Rue is. To from that family line comes Jesus. Do, do you just love the way he works? Do, do you love the way he works? That's what we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks. But look how they describe Boaz. As a man of great wealth, 
Some versions might say that Boab was a man of outstanding character. Others say he was a man of mighty wealth. Some says he was a wealthy and influential man, a man of standing, an honorable and wealthy man. Some say he was a man of substance or a substantial man or a man of worth. Some say he was a man of outstanding character. The same Hebrew phrase used to describe Boaz was used to describe Gideon when they said he was a mighty man of valor. It's also used in Proverbs 31 about a virtuous woman. It means that he had integrity. He might have been wealthy, and most commentators say he was extremely wealthy. He had lots of fields. He had lots of money. But what was more important is that he was a man of great integrity. Oh, don't you want to be a man or a woman of integrity? So automatically, right out the gate in chapter 2, we start to wonder, is this the man who might be able to help Ruth and Naomi? Is this the way God is working behind the scenes? The Bible says that he was of the family of Emelech. So just in case you forgot Emelech from chapter 1, who died there, uh, he's from the family of Emelech. This means from his clan or his tribe. He, he, he was from the clan of the Ephrathites, but he was also from the tribe of Judah. That's important. It's important that you know that because you're going to see that play out in the birth of Jesus. Verse 2 says, So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I might find favor. And she said to herself, Go, my daughter. I want you to see the, the, the use of the phrase Ruth the Moabitess. Now she is back in Bethlehem. She's not in Moab anymore, but she's still referred to as Ruth the Moabitess. Can I tell you that our past will follow us? And, and hers did. And, and, and don't miss the fact that the author is using that phrase. He's reminding us of Ruth's situation, that she's a foreigner, that she's an outsider, that she's, in, she's a, a, a Gentile enemy. She's outside God's covenantal promises. She's a stranger to Israel's God. And so every time we'll read in this passage that she's, she's, she's referred to as Ruth the Moabitess, it's a reminder that she didn't belong. Gentiles were looked down on. They were dogs to the Jews. They were despised. And, and yet we see over and over and over the reach of God's amazing grace to this desperate Gentile, to the one who didn't belong. And what, what blows my mind is that Ruth is unmoved by any of this, even their reception of her, because you see what she knew when she said to Ruth, your God will be my God. Where you go, I'll go. Where you die, i That was her saying, I am committing myself to you. You see, she took covenant seriously. I'm telling you, church, we've got to get to a place where we take covenant seriously. This is a soapbox for me. I'm just telling you, when you said I do, it was forever. It it was a covenant that you made before God. You didn't make it to your, your husband or your wife. You made it before God. And God takes covenant seriously because he is a covenant-keeping God. I'm sorry. I cannot water that down to make you feel better. This is why the United States is in the position it's in. Because preachers have stood in the pulpit and watered down messages to make people feel better instead of saying what God's word says. And that is what God's word says. And you see, Ruth, she had made a covenant to her husband. He died. She could have said, see you like Oprah did. Orpha did. I want to call her Oprah all the time. But Orpha said, you know what? I'll kiss you goodbye. I'm going to leave. And, and T.D. Jake says this. He said, if someone can leave you, let them leave. 
Get the gift of goodbye and say goodbye to them because if they can leave you, they were never with you. Paul says himself, those that left, I think it was Paul said, that, that, that those who weren't with us were never supposed to be with us. Can I tell you, if someone has left your side and you are mourning over them and you're grieving over the loss of them and you're on Facebook wondering what are they doing? How are they, you know, why won't they talk to me? Let them leave. Because God has got a Ruth that's going to be loyal and steadfast and committed to you who won't leave your side. And if you're still mourning over Orpha who left, Orpha was never tied to your destiny. If she could leave, she was never tied to your destiny. And see, Ruth understood that. And Ruth said, I I got this. I made a covenant to your son and he might not be here anymore, but I am still covenanted with you through blood. And I'm not leaving you. You can be mean to me. You can be unkind to me. You can give me the cold shoulder, but I am with you. I might be having my own crisis right now. I might be grieving myself right now, but I'm not going to get so tied up in that that I don't take care of you. See, Ruth understood cleaving. This was desperate for them. You see, they were women without husbands. They were not able to support themselves. They were very, very vulnerable. So they get to Bethlehem. They have no place to stay. They have no food. They have no provision. They have no jobs. And Ruth, (laughs) it's interesting. You see in that passage, please let me go. And we don't see Naomi talking a whole lot in that passage. And it's because commentators say that she was depressed, that she was hopeless, that, that she was bitter, just like she described herself. And that all she could see is herself at that moment. But Ruth said, I am not going to stay stuck in this pit. I am going to get out and do something. I'm going to take initiative. I want you to notice that Ruth didn't allow Naomi's bitterness to infect her. She recognizes the need, and instead of sitting back and waiting for somebody else to meet their need, she takes matters into her own hands, and she decides that she's going to go glean in the fields and get them some food. You see, God had set up a system to take care of people who were vulnerable and poor. It was the, the welfare system of the time, if you will. If you, if you turn over to Leviticus 19, you can read about it. Leviticus 19, verse 9. It says, Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your fields, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard, You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. In Deuteronomy 24, 19, he says, When you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless all the works of your hands. You see, God had told Israel that they shouldn't harvest their entire field clean during the harvest, that they should leave some behind uh, in the harvest for the poor, for the widows, for the, the child, for, for, for the fatherless, so that they, it was their welfare system, so that they could come and glean behind the harvesters and take up the little bit that remained and be able to go back and have a meal with their family. So Ruth knew that she had a legal right, not just as a widow, but as an alien, to glean. She didn't need to ask Naomi's permission. I want you to see that. But she did out of respect. She said, may I have your permission to go glean in the fields? I I don't want you to miss the fact that this would have been very, very dangerous for Ruth. She was a woman. She was a woman without a husband, a woman without a son to protect her. 
And remember, this was lawless times when everybody did what they saw right in their own eyes. They, saw, they did as they saw fit. And we know that because in verse 9, Boaz tells the, the men in the field not to lay hands, not to touch Ruth. These women would have been very vulnerable. They, they would have been at risk for abuse, for being taken advantage of. But look again, Ruth the Moabitess. Not only was she a widow, not only was she childless, she was a Moabite. But I don't care. She didn't sit back and, and wait for somebody to come and take care of her. She took matters in her own hands and she decided to go out and take care of her mother-in-law. And verse 3 says, she left and she went and she gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Oh, I just love that. She goes out to try to provide for her family, and it just so happened that she ended up in the field belonging to Boaz. I love that verse. I looked it up in several translations. Some say, as it turned out, she was working in the field belonging to Boaz. Another says, and it was her hap to light on the field belonging to Boaz. Another says, by chance, it happened to be the field that belonged to Boaz. And my favorite is, and as it happened, the field where she found herself belonged to Boaz. Oh, can I just tell you that nothing just happens. I promise you it doesn't. I looked up the definition to providence today because what, what was just dogging me all week as I studied this passage was God's providence. And, and I wanted a way to describe it to you uh, as clearly as I could. And I looked it up in the Webster's and it, it was just defined as the protective care of God. But it comes from the Latin word meaning uh, to foresight or making provision beforehand. But one of my favorite definitions was from J. Vernon McGee. He says, providence is the means by which God directs all things, both animate and inanimate, seen and unseen, good and evil, toward a worthy pur purpose, which means his will must finally prevail. Let me read it to you again. Providence is the means by which God directs all things, both animate and inanimate, seen and unseen, good and evil, toward a worthy purpose, which means he will, his will will finally prevail. It's God's protective care. Uh, Motir says the most amazing thing that God's providence teaches us is that even in our accidents, we are within his care. What I see in this story from start to finish is God's providence. That God is working even when it doesn't seem like it. Even when you can't see him. His providential care is at work in your life. Remember, that word providence means foresight. To see before. To, to make provision beforehand. That means that God sees the end from the beginning. You see, I love to watch Macy's parade. Anybody love to watch Macy's Thanksgiving parade? I love it. But, but I hate that I can only see one little float go by at a time. I want to be where Regis and Kathy Lee are, you know, up on the top where they can see the whole flow, the whole parade start to finish because they're sitting up so high. That's my Jesus. You see, I'm only seeing one float at a time going by in my life. But the one who is protecting me, who is watching over me, who is caring for my every need, who sees before and is making provision for it. Oh, he's the one up in the booth with Regis and Kathy Lee. He is seeing the whole parade at once. He knows the start from the end. He knows the finish. He knows every float along the way. He's like, Rhea, I've already made provision for what you are afraid of. 
That's what I see in this story so clearly. When Ruth and Naomi were ready to throw it in, when they thought it was too bitter, too burnt, too overdone, that life had just ripped them off one too many times, that God had moved their hand, his hand against them, when it looked the most bleak to them, God was at his best. He was already making provision because of his foresight. She just happened to find herself in the field. Of all the fields in Bethlehem, she just happened to find herself in the field belonging to Boaz. Nothing just happens. We'll find out next week. It just so happened that Boaz went to visit his field at just the same time that she was in it. Oh, can I just tell you, nothing just happens. And this is not in Ruth and Naomi's life. This is in your life. Nothing just happens. I don't care how bad it is. I don't care how hopeless it seems. I don't care how burnt the rue is. Can I tell you the Holy Trinity is going to be added into the equation and he's going to change everything for good. But do you believe it? Do you believe it? God works in ways we cannot see. He's always working behind the scenes. So many of us chalk up our life, we credit it to fate or to chance or to luck. Oh my goodness. But what some call luck or fate, I call the sovereign hand of God at work. Of all the fields in Bethlehem, she happened to find herself in the one belonging to Boaz. Is that a coincidence? No, I think it's a God incident. Deuteronomy 10, 18 says that God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Ephesians 3, 20 says God wants to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. You see, Ruth and Naomi were vulnerable. They were in need, and that sets them up for God to work powerfully in their lives. Ruth was totally ignorant of who Boaz was. She had no idea whose field she was in, but her God was not. She was ignorant of the future that God had planned for her. To her, the future was bleak and dark. But to the one who knows all things, it was this opportunity to show his faithfulness in her life. And that's what we're going to see in the weeks to come, how God miraculously takes what was meant for evil in her life and turns it around and uses it for good. I see it. I see it all through, all through Scripture. I see it with, with Joseph and his life. And, and in the end of Genesis, we see Joseph say to his brothers, what you meant for evil, the brothers who sold him into slavery, and his life just went downhill from there. It was one imprisonment, one, one issue after another in his life, that every time God would take what looked horrible and he would turn it around and use it for good. And in the end, Joseph Joseph looked his brothers in the eye and said, what you meant for evil, God meant for the saving of many men. He meant it for good. And I promise you that whatever is happening in your life, it looks out of control. Whatever is so dark in your life that it looks like it is way too messed up for anything good to ever come from, I promise you, if you stay in a position of trusting God, he will turn that thing around and he will use it for good. It's who he is. It's who he is. I want to close with just a quote from Larson Younger. I love it. He said, God in sovereign control. We live in a world that denies God's sovereignty. Events are seen as a result of purely independent action of free agents or simple random events in the universe. That something may be ordained, patterned by the divine creator, does not receive much consideration. Therefore, life is what we make it. 
We free agents can control our destinies through determination of our will. But Ruth, too, demonstrates that if it were just left up to us, we would in all likelihood not make it. While Ruth took positive action, she could not determine, she couldn't have even known that she will end up in the field of Boaz, who will show her incredible kindness and will eventually marry her. If this book teaches anything, it is that the Lord is sovereign and in control and that he superintends the details of our life. Do you understand the providence of God? He's so much bigger than what you're going through. And all he wants from us is for us to stay in a place of rest with him, where when all hell is breaking loose, when things look hopeless and out of control, that we sit in a place of rest and say, Lord, I I know what it looks like right now. I know the rue is burnt right now, but I am trusting that you are at work in ways I cannot see and that you are going to bring something good out of that. But you see, what instead we do is we head to Moab. We try to take a shortcut to avoid the pain. We try to take a shortcut to avoid the uncomfortableness. We try to take a shortcut to make our life easier when all the while God wants us to trust that he is at work. What would happen if our faith really testified to that? If we really trusted God, even when we couldn't see him at work. Can I tell you that I can testify to you tonight? I have no trouble standing up here saying this. That every ounce of pain I have ever been through in my life, and I have been through pain. Every bit of it. I look back now and can say, thank you so much for allowing that in my life, Lord. This is what I learned about you coming through that. This is how it strengthened me coming through that. This is what you taught me coming through that. You were faithful. I can't even tell you how many times just this week I said, you have been so faithful to me. Where in the midst of the trial and the heartache, I'd be like, you don't even love me. You don't even see what I'm doing for you. And God wants me to get to a place where I will say, and I honestly believe I'm getting to that place where I can say, no matter how hard it is, you love me and you are working this thing together for my good and your glory. I'm convinced of it. I promise you I'm convinced of it. So I'm going to ask Megan to come and play. And if you need prayer, we're here. We'd love to pray with you before we leave. And I know that the messages that I preach are hard, but I don't preach something that hasn't first preached to me. One of the things that I said to the Lord is, I will never stand up here and testify to something that I'm not living out in my own life. And I promise you that this is what I'm learning, that this is tested and tried, that this isn't a message I just studied to come up with that I really believe in God's providential care, that I really believe in God's sovereignty even over pain. And I am not trying to minimize your pain or your heartache. I am trying to maximize your hope because God is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. We have just dumbed down society and, and we've said, let's, let's drug that or let's, you know, let's numb that or let's leave that or divorce that or that's what we're teaching people versus the word of God that's trustworthy and true and so Father we just thank you for every man and woman here tonight and I thank you that you are so good to us you are so so good to us 
And Lord, I pray specifically for those who are in that dark, trying time, tasting that bitter rue in their mouth. Oh, Father, would you just prove to them who you are, how powerful you are, and that you are indeed the redeemer of all things. Would you let hope arise in this place tonight? Father, I pray in the continuing weeks as we study in the book of Ruth that you would just bring deeper clarity and understanding and that you would speak to us, Lord God, about the truth of your word. Lord, we want to know you better. We want to love you more. And Father, I, more than anything in this whole wide world, want to look more like you and act more like you. Would you enable and empower us to do that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.